This is the World Unpacked. It's Doug, your host, and welcome back to the show. The problem of disinformation has been with humanity forever. Since the moment we could speak to one another, we've been telling each other lies. It's a foundational aspect of individual and group psychology to believe things that reaffirm our assumptions or prejudices. Around 100 years ago, a man named Edward Bernays professionalized the way information and disinformation is used on behalf of commerce, war, and politics. He used concepts from psychology and pioneered influencer marketing and deployed public relations campaigns designed to quote George Orwell, to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable, and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. The information landscape that Bernays disrupted lasted with more or less the same information delivery systems and rules until the end of the 20th century. You had trusted media outlets, high quality local media coverage from newspapers, and a relatively limited number of radio and television news sources. But then came the internet and social media and change and plummeting public trust in virtually all institutions. Into this new information environment jumped Russian trolls, the big lie, COVID skeptics, violent Hindu nationalists, QAnon, and hundreds of more propagandists creating real-world consequences from digital influence operations. How do we stop the insanity? Joining me today to answer that question is Alicia Wanless, Director of the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations. Her pathbreaking work at Carnegie is creating an entire new field of research, building a foundation of knowledge and data upon which real policy changes can come to arm ourselves and the world against disinformation. Here we go. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doug. So you're the director of the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations here at Carnegie. What is that? Uh, It is a multi-stakeholder initiative that aims to foster evidence-based policymaking and counter threats within the information environment. Okay, that was a pretty fancy answer. Let's try to break that down a little bit. Let's start with what an influence operation is. So an influence operation is the organized attempt to affect an audience or an outcome. Um, Usually this is done by more than one actor using more than one tactic over a longer period of time. Okay. So an example of that would be the Russian effort to support the election of Donald Trump, for example. Yes, that would be one example of an influence operation. Um, They can be very deceptive on one scale and be run by an adversary of a country onto the audience of another. Um, But they can also be good and for the benefit of society, like public health awareness campaigns. The problem that we have currently in dealing with these things is that we don't have a lot of lines in the sand between what is an acceptable action and what is not. So part of your work, to go back to the title of your group here, which is the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations, countering, let's focus on that. What, what, what needs to be done? How are you looking at countering the influence operations that aren't uh, sort of decided to be positive? That is a very good question, Doug. Um, We have been running this project for the last two years. In the first year that we were working, we did a lot of meta studies to try to understand what was being done by whom to counter influence operations. Um, And what did we really know about the phenomenon and what did we know about the impact of interventions? Uh, After about seven of those studies, it turns out that we actually know very little 
Um, we don't really know much about how the information environment works as a system. There's very little analysis about how things like influence operations pass through different types of platforms and into media and how different types of actors are engaging with them within the context of the information environment. Um, we don't know very much about the measurable effects of things like influence operations, including tactics like disinformation, particularly when they're run over digital media platforms. And we know even less about the impact, much less the effect efficacy of interventions to counter things like disinformation and influence operations. The most research uh, that is from the academic community tends to be on things like fact-checking, disclosures, and pre-bunking. Uh, we know very little about the impact of interventions made by digital media platforms. And when they have disclosed that they've done tweaks to their platforms, the last time we looked about a year ago, 8% of those public disclosures mentioned efficacy without providing much further information. So. To put all that into context, we don't really know what the impact overall in the information environment is of things like content moderation and deplatforming, like total removal of certain actors from a platform. It could be like introducing cane toads into Australia to deal with a pest. It may deal with the specific problem in front of the farmer, but the longer term implications for the continent were really quite bad. So we need to speed up research in this space. I, I've heard you use this analogy about the cane toads before, and it's so interesting how you draw a parallel between, you know, doing something in an ecological setting that has maybe a short term gain, but a huge long term consequence uh, and the information environment. But before we get into some of those other concepts and ideas, I want to ask, who are the key stakeholders? You're a partnership, right? So who are the key stakeholders you're trying to bring together as the sort of foundation of understanding disinformation campaigns? Yeah, so the information environment is obviously very broad. Um, and there are multiple actors who are capable of intervening or doing something about different aspects of the problem. So they range from governments who can set regulation, who can do massive funding, who have the ability to really set an agenda for how things will go. They also kind of dictate, you know, things like principles for how we can operate within the information environment and where those lines in the sand might be. Uh, tech companies, industry are another major uh, stakeholder in this space. They control the infrastructure. And as it stands in an absence of regulation, they're also the ones who are making the rules for better or worse, often because they're being pressured to do so um, via media coverage and other criticism. So it's not necessarily very strategic. It's been dubbed by some as Facebook's Supreme Court. The world's largest social media site has launched its independent oversight board nearly a year behind schedule. Uh, a third area is civil society. In there, I would lump um, both the academic research community, but then also nonprofit organizations and think tanks. Uh, a lot of the work that looks at things like influence operations in other parts of the world come out of civil society as opposed to academia. Um, but then media is also a huge component of this. Uh, it's often overlooked or forgotten for some reason, uh, with a greater emphasis on the digital technology that is a part of the modern information environment, but media obviously plays a key role. Then there is the monolith of the average people who we're not necessarily trying to engage, but the audiences are generally forgotten because again, we're not looking at this as a system. And within that, I would add a subgroup that <laughs> is one of the biggest problems for polluting the information environment, but it's like an elephant in the room. And that's politicians. 
almost always domestic politicians who are uh, polluting the information environment and sowing distrust for their own gain to get power. So it's very complex. Now, the partnership itself, um, when we started out, initially, we tried to bridge the divide between industry and researchers to start and have subsequently moved um, beyond the civil society research community of academia and um, civil society and think tanks and industry and into government. Um, and the one example in which that is perhaps more practical to explain is our response in trying to ensure the integrity of the Ukrainian information environment. That's a great project, and we can talk about that a little later. I, I want to stay at the 30,000-foot level here. Influence operations, propaganda, disinformation, is none of this is new. I mean, since human beings could talk to one another, there's been disinformation. It seems like all of a sudden, for me, I would point to 2016, but it's probably, you know, built up to that point as well. What was sort of anodyne propaganda has now become like a dangerous threat to democracy, to huge groups of minorities in countries all around the world, to, I mean, stocks, you know, look at what happened with GameStop, you know, for example. I mean, these are having huge disruptive effects. So so what's changed? What, why is this sort of suddenly become supercharged? Uh, humans tend to respond to events in the last thing that just happened. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of that, right? There's sensationalism that that makes it something that becomes something we see everywhere. Um, if we step back, the information environment, which I'm just going to give a definition, sorry, Doug, uh, is the space where humans and machines process and share information to make sense of the world. That can include a whole variety of things, from ideas to words to videos, pictures. And that information moves to the information environment via channels like social media, but also television, radio, and peer-to-peer -peer in person. And that has always existed as long as humans have communicated. But every time we introduce a new technology, it adds an additional complication. And there seems to be some follow-on effects. And in this current age where we are now um, experiencing the you know last decade or so after introducing web and then social media, what we're seeing is that um, one, that information can now move faster and farther than ever before. A greater number of people were enabled uh, to be able to engage with that information meaningfully, but also to obfuscate their identity in, in novel ways. And this was all happening at a time when using that technology was generating more data on people that could then be used in turn to run influence operations on them. And so this has kind of made this a, a bigger, perhaps more pressing immediate concern. It has always been a concern. And one of the reasons why we're on such a back footing with this is because we really haven't got a handle of the information environment, the system in which it's occurring, to be able to find those patterns and get ahead of it. All right. So you mentioned big data. You, you know, we're talking a lot about social media platforms where people are communicating a lot, where disinformation is polluting the the ecology, information ecology, the information environment. They obviously have an important role to play here. How do you think about tech companies and their role in combating disinformation? It's a, it's a bit complicated. Um, I think that at this point in time, the one point of intervention that we seem to be having at all is with big tech. They are the only spot where we're trying to make a difference or force them to make a difference. Uh, I think that might be a bit problematic in the long run because we're treating this as if it was a technological problem. Yes, technology 
can exacerbate existing underlying conditions. But fundamentally, issues like disinformation and bad influence operations are fundamentally human. We are susceptible to it. We also seem to like a junk diet of information. <laughs> we want to be entertained and we are easily swayed by our own biases. So again, while technology makes it worse, I don't think a tech solution exists to stop us from, on one hand, having actors who are going to engage in it and audiences who are going to willingly consume it. Let me push you a little bit on this. We we saw the development of radio. We saw, and obviously you can talk about the War of the Worlds and people thought aliens were landing, right? As a high profile instance of accidental disinformation. Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. Television, another revolution, right? I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. Everyone told me it was rotting my brain. Maybe it did. Who knows? Um, it seems like humanity sort of absorbed these with less bumps than currently we've seen with social media. What's your, what's your view on that? I, I actually don't think that it was fewer bumps in terms of uh, adopting other technology. So I'm just coming off of finishing a very long research paper uh, looking at the information environment in five case studies throughout time. And what it looked at was the period following the introduction of a new technology that changed fundamentally how humans engage with information. And we see similar patterns happen every time some new technology comes in that is so different. Um, we had the same problem after the printing press was introduced. Um, typically what happens is the new technology comes in, it enables a greater number of people to be able to engage with information that maybe hadn't before. There's usually a correlation with um, a speed at which the information can move, and it will result in a bigger output of information volumes. What follows after that tends to be an information competition, often because a new idea emerges that challenges existing ideas. And the actors involved in that will then kind of speed up an escalation to the point where those two worldviews can no longer exist. Along with that comes information flooding. So both sides will engage in trying to get their messaging out uh, at an even greater rate and speed, but also information pollution, whereby people are engaging in disinformation, low quality uh, content, as well as abuse and things like this that degrade the overall environment. Um, a fourth one that usually comes along as well is a breakdown in the feedback loop between leaders and the public, and they just don't really understand anymore. And this kind of becomes... Um, how would you say, a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy in which the two sides keep going at it to the point where they ultimately end up in conflict. Now, the period that I studied was in advance of wars, so we could say that that might be biasing it, but I can't help but shake that we are wide, widely in democratic societies in a similar situation with the 25-year period coming out of the introduction of, of the internet. So you've looked at these different instances, going back to the printing press hundreds of years ago. Tell us it's all going to be okay. We're, we're, we're going to get through this period and, and social media will become less of a font of sort of destruction and chaos and disinformation. I would love to give you peace of mind uh, that things are going to be better and fine. All I can tell you is that humans seem to be really resistant, resilient, <laughs> resilient, and they persist. So whatever comes, the chances are that short of nuclear fallout, they'll probably make it through. Um, 
That was a horrible answer, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't exactly what I was hoping for, but, you know, it's hard to sit here and look at the sort of daily deluge of stories about disinformation and how it affects places like the United States and Hungary and others and think, oh, God, like, are we ever going to get past this? You know, see, this is the thing that worries me is the way that the discourse has gone on this topic. It's not overly nuanced. Um, Our fixation with disinformation being the root cause of all the problems is also challenging. As I mentioned at the beginning, in terms of the academic literature and being able to measure the effects of disinformation, we don't really know what the long-term or even short-term effects are. We have causation. We see that it's occurring and we see that there's an outcome that we might not like, and we tie the two things together. Our current environment is particularly problematic for this. Um, With the pandemic, there was a kind of trifecta, a perfect storm of conditions that made everything worse. Uh, One is that the same part of the brain that is activated in a fearful situation is also activated in uncertainty. So what this does is it drives people to want to find answers, any answers. It doesn't matter whether they're the right answers. So people fall down these rabbit holes trying to make sense of what's happening and there's a data void and they just cling on to whatever makes sense. We are also more susceptible to magical thinking, so we'll confuse correlation and causation more readily in uncertainty. And then the last thing is we have a greater need to belong to groups in uncertainty. And so that whole situation with lockdown and the pandemic and just fears for life were a perfect situation to push people into things like the Great Reset pushing an idea that the whole con- the whole pandemic was a conspiracy. And now we're experiencing the fallout of that. I think what's more concerning for me in general is how those movements and ideas are used by domestic politicians to further inflame the masses for their own end. When we come back, I'll ask Alicia about disinformation campaigns in Ukraine and about how Russia, China, and other authoritarian governments are seeking to protect disinformation. Hey, World Unpacked fans, thanks for tuning in. Have you ever wondered what's going on in Indian foreign policy and domestic politics? If you have, you should download Grand Tamasha to your podcast lineup. Every week, my colleague Milan Vaishnav breaks down the messiness of Indian politics with top journalists, policymakers, and authors from India and the diaspora. You can find Grand Tamasha on every major podcasting platform. So go download it. Now, let's get back to the show. So let's talk about some sort of ongoing issues around disinformation. And I want to start with the war in Ukraine. You've been working and the folks at PCIO have been working with the G7, with NATO and others to basically help try to keep the Ukrainian information environment clear of Russian disinformation. Tell us a little bit about how you're approaching that problem. Initially, when Russia had invaded Ukraine, there was a knee-jerk response among many of the Western democracies to simply push platforms to do more. Again, coming back to it being perceived as the only point of intervention, uh, that seemed to be like a default. And a lot of the calls were things like ban Russian officials and state media from the platform. This was disconcerting because at the time, there was also quite a bit of dissent from high-profile Russians coming through Instagram to the West against the war. And it was also a primary tool for Zelensky and other Ukrainians to try to reach Russians. 
But the Russians have been working at the UN level for a number of years around a concept of digital sovereignty, which is basically to try to have control over your own information environment and kind of cut off and hands off from other countries from interfering. And so my worry was at the time, this was just giving the excuse to expedite this. If we block them, they'll block us. And of course, that's what happened. And they started blocking platforms, arguably to different degrees of success, because some Russians are still clearly getting by through VPNs. But this fractures the the information environment. And this is kind of problematic. Now, add to that, if we look at all of the people who will be responding in a crisis now, it's almost total society. I mean, yes, you've got different parts of the government that respond. You have the tech companies that are responding and a variety of them too, from cybersecurity, the social media platforms. You also have civil society. So usually traditionally that's been like more of the organizations and stuff. Do you also have average citizens who were like sometimes engaging in hacking themselves, spreading, you know, information, crowdsourcing and fundraising. So it's really quite total. Now there's next to no coordination between them. Um, and Beyond that, we have these major gaps between different stakeholder types often operating in their own silos. Um, so you have all of the ones I just mentioned, but even within them, a single government, you may have one group that deals with foreign originating disinformation, another one over here who's doing intelligence, another one that has cybersecurity, another one doing STRATCOM, which is totally different. And then the aid agencies who were the ones who had actually been funding those CSOs, doing media literacy, media development, digital safety, all that stuff. And that's completely disconnected within a single government often, forget across the board. Now, because of my background, I have a degree in Russian, and uh, the last case study in my thesis was Ukraine 2014. Um, I've got a number of contacts with the region. I was getting requests directly just because of my own network for help. And the requests were really wide ranging. They included things like uh, needing satellite phones because the infrastructure was down, um, getting chargers just to be able to stay online, finding more data to be able to analyze the effectiveness of strategic communication campaigns, different types of researchers looking at different platforms and access. It was broad ranging. And then given some experience that I've had working on the Syrian conflict in the past, I also knew that other things would be coming along, like needing to report war crimes, and then the safety associated with that on mobile devices, what happens when an average citizen who's been doing that gets picked up, say, by a Russian, their device puts them in danger. Now, <laughs> for any one person to answer all of those things, you would need to know people on different teams across different sections within different organizations. And the more I dug, the less I could see there was any coordination to be able to fill us to fill those gaps to address them quickly. Now that's operational, but this also presented an opportunity. If we could create some sort of a switchboard, then what we could do is help meet those gaps in the short term, but perhaps also create the data to be able to understand what a strategic response would entail in the information environment, being able to look at it holistically and see the sum total of operations. And so that's pretty much what we're setting up um, with those multi-stakeholders um, to really try to get a, a handle on. So in order to sort of respond to a wartime situation in Ukraine, you're helping break down barriers and facilitate conversations between people who can help keep that information environment clean, basically, is what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, that's right. It's a, a faster way to speed up connections between those who can solve problems with those who have the problems, but also information sharing. So if there's a security update that happens on a specific platform or device, being able to reach a greater number of Ukrainians or at least people who can reach those Ukrainians faster. So you mentioned you also worked on Syria, another sort of conflict zone, Ukraine, obviously, but you're also working on places that are at peace with potentially much more robust government and private sector entities, the United States, for example, Canada. Is each sort of information environment unique or is this is this siloing problem really the core thing to address in order to keep information environments clean? I think that the siloing problem is definitely there. We don't really, I think, in Western thought in particular, foster systems views. Um, So we tend to look at things in silos and give people their little mandates and then have them operate and maybe hope that everything comes together. There's also, uh, I would say, discomfort, really, in trying to look at the information environment as a system because we have a number of uncomfortable problems that need to be discussed that for whatever reason in democracies are things we don't like to. So for example, what is the role of influence in a democracy? Obviously there has to be some to convince people to go along with each other and compromise and do things together. But where's the line after which too much influence and manipulation removes the agency of people to make decisions of their own free will? Because that's the fundamental legitimacy of democracy. We haven't really had that conversation yet in democratic society. So that's a problem. Without having that, then we have no lines in the sand around, you know, how far can we go? What can we do? And beyond that, coming back to strategy, I haven't really seen any of the our friendly democratic societies articulating what their vision is for a healthy information environment. What is it that we're trying to achieve intervening at all? Why should stakeholders come along and help us and do that? And I think that comes back to the whole strategic problem is that we're dealing with a very complex issue, but we haven't even really conceptualized, framed it, or really understand it. We just see this really specific problems in front of us like disinformation and can't move beyond. So you talk about democracies sort of failing or not really trying in the proper way to address the problem of disinformation. But there are plenty of countries out there, Russia we've talked about, China, Iran, others, who view the proliferation of disinformation as a potential strategic, tactical tool in their toolbox to maintain control domestically, to influence geopolitics. How are they seeking to sort of protect disinformation and the opportunity to use it? So I would say, I mean, they see using disinformation so long as they can control it and and it and it suits their own interests. Um, countries like Russia and China have a have number one a far more systemic view or understanding of the information environment. They're seeing it as a sum total. They're not necessarily breaking it down into parts and not looking at that bigger picture. Um, at the same time, their approach to it is greater control of it. So how can they control the media outlets? How can they control things like social media? How can they control the narrative? How can they police content? It's very heavy handed in the longer term. I wouldn't recommend it as a strategy for any country. It's very difficult to maintain over time. And all things can fall apart. At least that's what I've seen from starting from the from the Peloponnesian War to the Ukrainian War in the in the thesis. Um, now, what's 
more disconcerting is that, okay, fine, that's a model. That is one model. In fact, it's probably the only articulated model at this point. They're actively, especially Russia with other countries, actively promoting this at the UN level um, to try to encourage other countries to adopt. So last November, uh, Pakistan with Russia and some other non-democratic countries put forward a resolution on disinformation at the UN calling on the Secretary General to solicit inputs from member states on best practices for counting disinformation. The challenge here is that the wording of that document really puts it firmly in the governments to take control of tech companies, not much in the middle around civil society or how that would work. Given that Western democracies haven't articulated a model for themselves that would work in the context of democracy, the model of control is the only one that exists. And so what will happen is that these countries in between will simply go with what works out of fear of the of the problem of out of fear of doing nothing. And we see this already happening in a country like India. So democracies are either not looking at this properly or doing a bad job. Authoritarian states are using the United Nations to protect disinformation and control tech companies. Sounds pretty bad. I I have to assume you've got some sort of idea about how we can do better, maybe, you know, deal with this problem in a sensible way. Low hanging fruit, I would strongly encourage uh, at the G7 level and other democracies to come together to articulate some basic principles. They don't even have to be, you know, too great at this point, but let's agree on some fundamental things like do we agree that? a country should have the freedom to not have external uh, manipulation of their information environment or covert in, uh, manipulation. And then they have to live by those. Uh, we can't just say those and, and and have them for one other group and not for us, because that also isn't very palatable for all the countries somewhere in between. Um, we do need to speed up research to understand the information environment and the impact of interventions, especially before we run off introducing ones that are really geared at control. To my mind, there's only one way to do this at this point. Um, the field that has been researching things like disinformation and aspects of the information environment has been very piecemeal and it's very inefficient. What I mean is that, number one, project funding for research is very project-based, so it's not necessarily building on each other. I mean, it doesn't bring researchers together necessarily, but also the cost of engineering is extremely expensive. So what we have now is an inefficient approach where different research centers are trying to build their own data pipeline that doesn't ever really get reused again either. Um, so we're doing things uh, in piecemeal, not coming together. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'll get this analogy right, so you may have to cut it. So I'll put some breaks. My partner in uh, developing a concept for a bigger research institute, Jake Shapiro, likes to use the analogy of building telescopes. If we want to see deep into outer space, having each person build a small little telescope in their backyard isn't going to get us there. What we need is to be able to pool resources to build something much larger to be able to uh, see deeper into space. We need the same when it comes to researching the information environment. There are a lot of people out there who think that the model of social media is part of the problem or maybe the central problem. Um, Elon Musk famously is sort of heretical about the way in which Twitter was run 
uh, and the fact that Donald Trump was banned, for example, he's sort of got the libertarian bent, right, on content moderation, right? It should just be a free-for-all. My strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, 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 and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. But you've, um, you've described I, yourself. I, I don't care about the economics at all. Uh, there are others who believe that, you know, everybody who says any disinformation should be deplatformed. I'm wondering how you see the role of the rules of the platforms, not only on disinformation, but on how people engage with them. I, I don't know how much I have a personal view on, on, on that. I think there's many ways you can look at it. Uh, one is that they're private companies. And as long as a law is not broken, they can technically create whatever community standards and policies they see fit, which, as Musk was arguing, could just be only around things that are codified in law and, and you can't do. Um, the challenge with that is there's a lot of bad things humans do that are just not very nice. And the internet is kind of like a distorting mirror in which it reflects all of the things that humans were in and makes it worse, bigger, faster. And uh, as a woman online, I would say that the experience can be quite disconcerting um, and bordering to not safe. Uh, and so the platform policies that get put in place are, are things that do try to deal with some of that. Um, I worry that because we've left it pretty much to companies as a society to figure out uh, and then just push them when events happen to do more without really saying what more is half the time, uh, that we've put ourselves in a very bad position in which civil society isn't really engaged in determining what those rules might be. So I would come back to, again, the environment analogy is that we all live in the information environment. We might not be able to control all of it because some people have bought up land and are using it inappropriately and other ones are just polluting it for their own gain or whatever. Um, but there is a common good. It doesn't mean that it's a common space that we all own, but because it affects each of us, we need to be looking at it like that bigger system. And then I think as multi as a multi-stakeholder group, as a society determining what those rules should be, I think... I'm a little bit worried that we've hit a threshold whereby that's no longer possible because we've fallen into essentially camps of worldviews that are incompatible and will prevent us from being able to even come up with those lines in the sand now. Alicia, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. The internet is a dark and scary place, but thankfully you and your colleagues at PCIO and elsewhere are looking at how to make sure it's a little bit better. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The World Unpacked, a podcast produced by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like the show, please rate and subscribe. The World Unpacked is produced by Cliff Jayapranada and Clarissa Guerrero and edited by our audio engineer, Tim Martin. See you next time.